have people. We have people here. Yay! Welcome to exploring Lord of the Rings with our very own. Let's see. What are, where are you on the server? Narnian. He's Narnian okay. on the server. <laughs> so listen, I wanted to let folks know that are here and also on Twitch that the next two classes, the next two Tuesdays, there will not be class because Corey is bouncing all over the place right i you're just yes i can't keep track of you yes um so the next two now i didn't then look to see what the next uh so that means the 30th and the 6th we will not have class and we'll be back on the 13th and i will tell you right now though i'll also put it into uh the various places that we talk we'll be on crick hollow on the 13th of june so no class until the 13th and we'll be on crick hollow okay all right so you ready to roll Ready to do this thing? We're ready. All right. I will now depart. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Exploring the Lord of the Rings again. Uh, We are ready to start Chapter 5 here this evening. I'm very excited about that. Um, Yeah, I am sorry I'm going to be away the next couple weeks. Uh, I'm I'm in the middle of traveling right now, you can see, by the way. Uh, behind me, this is not my normal room. Uh, uh, in case you're wondering, no, I'm I'm not in prison, nor uh, am I based on despite what you might see and the echoey sound that you hear. I'm not in a bathroom stall. I am in a a, a sort of dorm style uh, apartment room uh, down in Charlotte, Virginia, Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, visiting my friends at Johnson C. Smith University, uh, for a wonderful faculty development summer institute I've been attending, uh, the last few, uh, the last few years, which has been wonderful. Uh, they're great people down here. I'm always great. I'm always excited to come down here and visit. Uh, and, uh, anyway, so here I am this evening, uh, from my, uh, uh, admittedly not highly decorated room, but perfectly comfortable facility here, uh, in Charlotte. So, um, tonight, as I say, we are start, we are starting into, uh, no, Sam, I really can't do much of a Carolina accent, uh, and I don't want to insult, uh, uh, Southern folks by pretending, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, okay, so... Tonight, uh, our class is called Home Away From Home, as we look at both the uh, sort of the smaller scale, uh, Crick Hollow, of course, is like the bag end away from bag end, Um, this transition that Frodo is theoretically making, right? Um, And looking at at, uh, the significance of his approaching Crick Hollow, this is a big moment, right? This this, this moment of the crossing of the Brandywine uh, and the exiting of the Shire proper, uh, is really a big deal. Um, and it's interesting that, of course, the first thing that he transitions into is a place which is explicitly like Bag End, but different from Bag End, right? So we're going to look at that uh, and see how that kind of works out. And, of course, also looking at the larger context, that is to say Buckland itself, um, as Buckland itself is kind of a shire away from the shire, right? Um, this sort of extension of the Shire that was founded by the old Buck family. Uh, and of course, we're going to take a look at the history of Buckland as it's given to us in brief by the narrator uh, in this uh, uh, in this section as well. So, uh, but before we start, as always, I want to pick up with some questions uh, that were posted on our discussion board. Um, some good questions this week. 
so this from Crispin Hill, which uh, which I thought was great, and he apologizes. But, of course, he's sending us all the way back to Chapter 2. This question about Sam and his infenestration, as I, and as I never need much prompting uh, to talk about Sam more, I'm, uh, I'm happy to do this. I think this is a great question. Uh, I'd like to draw you back to Chapter 2 to address something that has bothered me on and off for 35 years. Namely, why does Gandalf, upon infenestrating Sam Gamgee in Chapter 2, seem to suddenly decide to send Sam off with Master Frodo on what is potentially the most serious, perilous, and important task laid before anyone in the Third Age? At first, it appears to be a mightily impulsive decision, made on the spot and seemingly made possible only by Sam's lurking under the window in the Bag End Garden. Of course, we are given some background to Sam with his fruitless debate in the pub and his sailing, sailing moment, but there seems to be precious little to suggest that Sam is the perfect companion to Frodo on this journey. Yes, he's a loyal servant, and yes, he's interested in elves, sir, but even if Gandalf knows these things about Sam, which he may have visited the Shire over the years, though I haven't spotted any mention in the text that Gandalf knew the Gamgee lad was something special, is this enough to pick him out and send him? As another way of looking at this, an interesting uh, and an interesting thought experiment, what do you think might have happened had Sam not been there to infenestrate in Chapter 2 and be sent off with Frodo? Okay, all right, so... That's um, a great question, as I say. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I am, I'm a fan of this question. So let me sort of address the first thing first. Why does Gandalf suddenly decide to send Sam off with, uh, with, with, with Frodo? So, okay. Um, first, I want to acknowledge, as Crispin was pointing out, there are things that we know about Sam that Gandalf doesn't seem to know, right? Uh, it is interesting that we, the readers, are given more context than Gandalf would appear to have. Um, we, Gandalf does not know, for instance, about that conversation down at the Green Dragon uh, with you know, the, the debate and the sailing, sailing moment, right? We are given this insight into Sam and we see sort of the, the depths in Sam and Sam's connection to the older myths and stories. And, uh, you know, so when he comes in and he says, and I believe them, no matter what Ted Sandyman may say, we know what he's talking about. Nobody else has any idea what he's talking about. Right? You know, whatever Ted Sandyman might say. Um, does Frodo even understand what he's referring to? You know, or maybe in a general way? Gandalf surely doesn't exactly, right? But um, so, so I think that it is important to recall that we've been given some context for Sam uh, that the rest... So in some ways, it kind of makes more sense to us, I think, uh, than it makes uh, to... Uh, uh, than, than, than we could expect it to make to Gandalf. And I think that that's, a, that's an interesting uh, and a perfectly valid point. Now, the question that Crispin also raises, essentially, does Gandalf know stuff that we don't? You know, we don't, in fact, know the history. We know that Gandalf has been around in and out for a while. He would have had an opportunity to meet Sam Gamgee. He clearly knows Sam Gamgee and addresses him by name as soon as uh, as soon as soon he drags him in the window, right? So, so we know that he knows Sam, but uh, we don't... And, uh, you know, Crispin, you haven't missed anything. There isn't any reference in the text to, uh, you know, any prior knowledge of Sam or any indication that he has, you know, already kind of picked him out as Frodo's companion or anything like that. I don't, I don't, I don't see any indication of that. Um, it's, of course, not completely impossible that... Um, it's not completely impossible that Gandalf has 
kind of done some talent spotting and noticed Sam in the past. It's it's you know, given that how much Sam has obviously been around Bag End, not just as a gardener, but listening to Mister Bilbo's stories and that kind of thing. Could Gandalf have? seen him or been involved or something like that, uh, you know, been around when Bilbo was telling stories and whatever. Certainly possible. Definitely possible that that could have been happening. Um, so, you know, we know, for instance, uh, well, let's see. We know from The Road to Erebor, which is written significantly after this, significantly after The Fellowship of the Ring, I mean, um, the Road to Erebor, which was published in Unfinished Tales, but which was originally drafted to be part of Appendix A uh, of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so it was written at the tail end of that process. But anyway, in Appendix A, we do get this uh, this sort of glimpse into the backstory of The Hobbit from Gandalf's point of view. And we are told that Gandalf basically did notice B- Bilbo when he was a kid, Right. Um, and that he sort of noticed that there was something promising and special about him. Um, and then when he came back, when he, Gandalf, came back to see Bilbo later on, uh, you know, and when he was middle-aged and 50 and settled down at you know, the age he was at the beginning of The Hobbit, um, uh, Gandalf was disappointed, right, that he had uh, not lived up to the promise that he'd seen in him and everything. Uh, so anyhow... Um, so is it conceivable, you know, that Gandalf had seen something in Sam... Sure, it's conceivable, but again, we, we don't have any real, necessarily, any reason to believe that. And in, I, in any case, don't think that it's the case that, like, he had already chosen Sam, and, uh, and, and, and you know, that, like, that was how he, Gandalf, had planned it all along. I don't believe that. Instead, I do think that it was um, a sudden decision, exactly as Crippen said. He suddenly decided to send Sam off. Uh, with Frodo on the most serious, perilous, important task laid before anyone in the Third Age. Yes. Um, so why would Gandalf do that? Uh, Gandalf would do that because uh, uh, he was he was there, right? This is one example of something that we'll see many, many times. Um, remember we had this conversation to a certain extent with Gildor. Remember Gildor trying to make sense of what their chance meeting meant, right? It was a chance meeting. Um, the fact that um, the fact that the elves came, the Gildor and his elves came along at just the moment that the Black Rider was approaching them, um, you know, he could see like in this meeting there may be more than chance, right? So he 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 was. Whenever there's a coincidence like that, um, he suspected that there was something more to it, right? That there was some kind of task here, some kind of calling, some kind of role that he had to play, but what that role was wasn't clear to him. Remember, he was kind of wrestling with that. He didn't didn't know how to interpret it exactly. He just didn't know... um, he, he, He didn't know how to interpret it. He knew it was significant, but he didn't quite know how to interpret it, right? I think that what we see with Gandalf in this moment is Gandalf making a snap interpretive decision, Right, um, uh, you know, he he reaches out. He he thinks there's a spy. Right, remember, he's just been saying that the enemy has many ways of hearing. Uh, he seems genuinely to be suspecting that there's like a spy of Mordor, possibly outside the window. So when he pulls Sam Gamgee up by the hair, and remember what he says is, "Well, bless my beard, Sam Gamgee, is it?" Um, that I think is the moment when he's the, when when he makes his decision. Right, and he he you know he he yanks Sam in through the window, um, and he. Gandalf makes an interpretive judgment, 
right? Why is it that you know that Sam has popped up at this moment? Sam should go with Frodo, right? Um, that this is just right, you know. That this is just this is this is this is a thing that should happen. Watch out for this. We'll see. You know, we, again, we we saw it with Gildar. We see it with Gandalf. We'll see it with others too. That like. Something random appears to happen. I'm going to take that as a sign, right? Um, I'm going to I'm going to trust that this has not happened by coincidence, right? Um, and again, doing that kind of in taking taking that interpretive step that Gandalf is clearly is I think clearly uh, taking here. Um, and of course, if you think about it, think about another thing that we didn't know at the time. Exactly, and that Gandalf didn't know at the time, but as we are about to learn more of here in chapter five, it's not a chance, right? It was not at all by chance that Sam was lurking outside under the bag end window, right? Why is he there? He's there because he's spying on Mr. Frodo, right? On purpose, right? He's there because he is uh, part of this conspiracy of people who care about Frodo, right? And who are trying to, like, be on his side and keep him safe and, and, and work for him behind his back, right? Um, uh, that's why he's there, right? And so, of course, it's right. It is fitting, um, that like yes, the very fact that he is present there under the window shows that he should be sent along. He should be included in this. That he is including himself. Um, so yeah. Um, now uh, Pontine says, "I always thought Gandalf took Sam because he knew about the ring and everything." Listening uh, by listening in by the window. Yeah. So like basically, like Sam knows too much, so we've got we, we can't afford to leave him behind. Um, yes. In a sense, and of course, I mean, he talks about it that way, right? Um, like, I've, I've, I've thought of something to shut your mouth and punish you properly for listening, he says. But it's that latter part of that. I don't believe that that's his motivation, right? You know, you, you know too much and now I'm shipping you out of the Shire, right? Um, that's the reason he gives, but I don't believe that it is actually the reason um, that he... Ch- and I think that's the second half of that sentence that... Uh, um, that gives it away, right? And punish you properly for listening. Gandalf doesn't for a second think that it's a punishment, right? Um, and of course, knows that Sam isn't going to see it as a punishment, right? I mean, as Sam uh, 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 affirms by saying, hooray, right? Uh, uh, and then, of course, bursting into tears because he's Sam uh, and therefore uh, sensitive to the complexity of the moment, right? But anyway, um, but like I said, I don't, I don't, I, I, you know, Punish you properly for listening. Gandalf is not serious there, right? He's giving Sam a hard time. Um, I don't think that he's so. Yeah. So no. I, so I don't take that seriously. I think that Gandalf is kind of joking or sort of speaking lightheartedly about something which is serious, right? In the way that you do, right? When you were a hobbit and when you are friends of hobbits. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah, Tony says, uh, I think this comes down to the way that Gandalf is always talking about what his heart tells him. Gandalf is listening to the music of the world and is following feelings that go beyond his physical senses. Yes, yes, but my heart told me. You're right, Tony. Remember, you're remembering, of course, that he talks that way on several occasions when he's giving the history of his discovery of the Ring of Power and everything, right? Um, yes, exactly. Being sensitive to that kind of thing 
is uh, is important, and we'll see a good deal more of that. For instance, when we get to the Council of Elrond. Um, yeah, Ambrosius says a combination of Gandalf's shrewd character judgment and his sensitivity to providence. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Like the, the, those those two things combined, I think, are exactly what we're seeing uh, from Gandalf there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good and yes, yeah, Sharon. I think that's I think that's a really good point. Um, uh, she says, I thought Gandalf sized him up and got a good gut reaction towards him, almost like a revelation that Sam fits the bill. Uh, I also think it's for show to impress upon Sam the seriousness of the business. Yes, the, the, the punish you properly for listening stuff, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, excellent. So that's uh, uh, number one. I do have uh, a couple of these today, so let me keep going. All right. Now, still moving, still backwards, but moving forwards now, go from chapter two uh, back up to chapter three. Not your shire. This seems like an important phrase we keep coming back to. Here are some of the ways I've been turning it over, uh, possible perspectives on it. See if you think they are interesting or valid at all. Something in the world has changed. So, sense number one of this being not your shire. Something in the world has changed objectively. This shire infiltrated by rings and wraiths is not the shire which was yours. That shire existed, but is now gone. Now, this one I think... Uh, I think that Gildor is not saying this. I don't, I don't believe that this is what Gildor means. Um, because he doesn't speak in that kind of tense. Like it's, he's, he, I don't think that Gildor is saying, it's not your shire anymore. Right, he's saying that, uh, but it's not your shire. I don't think he, he's suggesting it ever was their shire. However, nevertheless, I think that what Wes says here is true. Like this, this, this statement is still nevertheless a true statement. Um, that something in the world has changed objectively. Um, uh, and that, of course, I think is an important thing that we do see going on uh, in... Uh, in this whole series, and it's of course one of the things that we're seeing. I mean, in the, the this whole series of classes that we've been having as we've been uh, as we've been looking uh, slowly at this stuff developing, uh, we can see things definitely are changing, right? And and the way we can see that mapped in the changing attitude and changing understanding of Frodo and Sam and Pippin as they're traveling in their journey. Um, so yeah, we definitely see these kinds of changes. I think chapter three was very uh, um, was very sort of clear about that. Um, okay, what was the second meaning here of the, of it's not being their shire? That shire you conceived of was never a thing. Your shire only seemed safe and comfortable to you in your own ignorance of the truth. Thank goodness for an outbreak of of obvious strangeness to set you straight. Um, yes, this. I would actually say, Wes, I think this is what Gildor means when he says it's not your shire. Um, that you're fooling yourself when you think of it as your shire, right? Um, it's uh, Now, I don't think that that means... Because uh, there is a certain amount of objective truth in the safety and comfort of the shire, right? It has indeed been safe and comfortable for a long time, as Mike was pointing out in his response to this comment on the discussion board. But... Um, and of course, Frodo himself was echoing this sentiment with his whole his whole invasion of dragons comment that we were talking about last week. 
that he made in chapter two, but we were talking about it last week. Um, so there is this sense of like you it's time that you sort of paid attention to the wider world or even not just paid attention to the wider world, but reconsidered what the Shire was and its connection, its place within the wider world, right? Um, so I do think, um, uh, I do think, you know, and that's interesting, uh, Sharon, to think of it in that way, that uh, it relays the message to the reader that this is not your Shire, right? That it's not the Shire of the Hobbit. It's not the Shire you're familiar with. Yeah, to some extent, I think that that does happen. Let's look at West's third reason, our third understanding of it. You have a misunderstanding of the relationship, which leads you to apply a possessive where it doesn't belong. This Shire is not your Shire. For all your maps and walking songs, like the light of the Silmarils, was not Feanor's, for all his craft and lore. Or again, like those mushrooms were not your mushrooms, just like those pears weren't Augustine's pears. Uh, uh, bonus points, Wes, for the Augustine's Confessions reference. Um, it's a reference to the, the, the incident that uh, St. Augustine tells from his childhood, uh, when he and some friends climbed over a wall into somebody else's orchards and stole some pears, uh, which he cites, uh, St. Augustine cites, as one of the most wicked things that he ever did in his life um, because he did it motivated only by the desire to do something transgressive. It was just for the sake of wrongdoing. If he had stolen pears because he was hungry and wanted pears... um, that would have been much less wicked than merely doing some trans- something transgressive because it was wrong and, and against the rules. Um, that's the scene that, uh, you know, the sort of the, the moment that Wes is referring to there. Um, and it does seem possible, of course, that the stealing of Farmer Maggot's mushrooms uh, when uh, Frodo was in his teens could have had something in common uh, with Augustine's pears. And Wes, this is something that I think is uh, that, that the Lotro depiction of the Marish um, would seem to emphasize, right? Uh, given that there are mushrooms everywhere, right? I mean, in Lotro, to get to Farmer Maggot's fields, you've got to cross fields and fields covered with wild, with mushrooms, right? Uh, so really, the only motivation you would have to break into Farmer Maggot's farm and st- is just to like annoy Farmer Maggot or to 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 to, to do something transgressive like Saint Augustine and the pears. Uh, so, uh, uh, so I, I think that's a really nifty parallel. However, um, I don't think that that parallel applies with the Hobbit's attitude towards the Shire. Um, I like the connection with, uh, uh, with Feanor and the Silmarils somewhat better. Um, but I do think actually that Gildor is implying that first part of it as well. Um, you have a misunderstanding of ownership, which leads you to apply a possessive where it doesn't belong. Um, this may be, in a sense, I think. I, so, I mean, I, I do think that Gildar means the second meaning, right? Um, that your idea of, you know, because your idea of what the Shire is, is this entirely inward focused, ignoring the place of this, you know, the, the fact that this Shire is a place in the in the entire world. The fact that you're ignoring that means that, you know, you've had a misunderstanding of this all along. But but I think it's also, it's the, it's, it's the pronoun, I think, that Gildor objects to. Um, I think it's the pronoun that leads Gildor to say, but it's not your Shire, right? Um, you don't, you don't own it, right? You don't, it's not, it doesn't belong 
to you, you might think of it that way, right? Like, um, uh, remember the remember I say that we haven't gotten there yet, and here I am skipping ahead. Um, when Sam uh, later in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Sam is talking about the elves in Lothlorien, he will say that they seem to belong there more even than hobbits belong in the Shire. And we'll come back to that, obviously. Um, uh, But that sense of the fitness, right? The fitness of hobbits being in the Shire, the the, the aptness of their being there, right? Of their their presence there. That is um, something uh, I think that kind of gets closer to that possessive pronoun, right? It's okay to say that hobbits belong here. It's not okay to turn that around and say, therefore, this is ours, right? Um, and because, I mean, notice, remember, this is Gildor saying this as they're walking across the Shire. Like, he, Gildor, they don't have to ask permission of the hobbits, right? Hey, do you mind if we cro- if we cross your Shire, right? Can we? I know this is yours, right? Um, but wait, it's not theirs, Right, they're taking the hobbits to this, you know, elf grove that they have there. You know, this 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 little elf. It's theirs too, right? Um, and certainly they've been there for longer. Uh, but uh, anyway, so um, I, I think that we can see that the 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 attacking of the pronoun I think is a big deal. And then Wes's final point, not only does the Shire not belong to you, but you don't even belong to the Shire. Your home is elsewhere, and you must give up the Shire you love, not once but repeatedly, now and after the scouring, and leave Middle-earth entirely. We elves can feel you on that. Um, that is really interesting, and I do think that that's kind of a meaning that's going to come back. You know, so, so Wes, when we get to the end of The Return of the King, we'll talk about this more, right? Uh, because we will see this, and I hope to be returning to this idea and to be remembering Gildor's words when we get to the scouring and the, and the, the, the final two chapters uh, of The Lord of the Rings. Um, but we're certainly not there yet, right? And this sense of your, you know, the Hobbit's home is elsewhere and they must give up the Shire they love, we've only got the briefest glimpse of that. Right in Frodo's willingness to give up the Shire, um, so that others can can have it, right? So that they can remain safe. Um, but we haven't really seen that yet. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, Matt, that's a great point. Um, Matt says there's also the question of whether the your is singular, Frodo, or plural hobbits. I've always taken that as plural. Um, Mostly, Matt, just because Frodo is using the plural first-person pronoun, right? Our own Shire. Uh, and so when Gilder responds with, it's not your Shire, for that reason I always heard it in the plural, because Frodo was using it uh, in the plural. But of course it's conceivable that um, he, Gildor, is kind of calling Frodo on that, right? Um, I, 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 th- I think he intends it... Um, as plural, but I think it can have some some application as singular as well. And thinking about Frodo's own attitude towards it, um, as we can see, as we saw last week in the mental adjustment that Frodo himself still had to make, we saw that he is still guilty of exactly the same kind of narrow-mindedness which he admits has often annoyed him 
in his neighbors, right? Um, his, you know, almost lifelong habit of thinking of Farmer Maggot as the big villain, right, is, um, uh, is, is, is a, a, not a sign, but an example, right? An illustration um, of that same kind of, of parochial, hobbit-like, inward-focused uh, uh, thinking, not really looking at the big picture. Um, so it certainly has applicability to, uh, to, Frodo, to Frodo himself. All right, last question. And this one is quick because I got it on Twitter from Tony earlier in the week. Would we still consider Maggot mainstream hobbitry considering his relationship with Bombadil? Well, of course, we haven't gotten to Bombadil yet, so I don't really even know what we're talking about. But, uh, but Tony, my quick answer is yes. Um, but, I, but, but, but thanks for pointing that out. I would clarify, when I talked about Farmer Maggot as, uh, as an illustration of mainstream hobbitry, I don't mean that he is a typical hobbit in the sense of being average, right? Himself, personally, like he's just an average ho-hum hobbit. All, ha- all hobbits are just like Farmer Maggot. He may be, um, he may be extraordinary. I think he is rather extraordinary. We will have reason later on when we meet Tom Bombadil uh, to think that he is extraordinary. But he's still mainstream hobbitry. It's his lifestyle I'm talking about, right? Um, you know, think about the ways in which uh, Bilbo and Frodo and their, you know, connections, right, are different, are unhobbit-like. Um, whether it be their lifestyle, right, as like independent bachelors, whether it be their culture, right, in the sense of, uh, of you know, like going off and meeting with elves and hanging out with dwarves and um, not being farmers, not being, uh, you know, not having the same outlook that most of the other hobbits have, Um Farmer Maggot is all of those kind of normal things, right? He may himself have some extraordinary characteristics, but the life that he lives, right? The glimpse that he and his family give us uh, into into life in the Marish, life in the Shire, that's what I was referring to. And that, I think, still applies even when we learn um, that... um, uh, uh, Even when when we learn that... uh, um, uh, that he is a friend of Tom Bombadil. All right. Let's continue on. Um, all right. Last passage. This is the last passage of chapter four that I didn't get to last time. Uh, the very end. Um, we've just confronted the dark stranger riding his horse out of the, uh, out of the fog uh, to confront them. Uh, this strange muffled character uh, that they see before them. Uh, we looked at Farmer Maggot's bravery uh, first in holding the heads of the horses and then, uh, you know, uh, handing them to Sam and striding forward to, uh, to, to, to confront what he believes to be a black rider. Um, and then, of course, we saw the way that Tolkien then turns that moment and how we know even... Uh, the, the, how the, the, the suspense is immediately broken uh, as soon as Mary opens his mouth um, and I love the way that you know we can't tell from reading it on the page we can't tell uh, we can't recognize the, the voice right as they recognize the voice as soon as he starts speaking but we do get that instantaneous cue right by his correct honorific I'm looking for Mr. Baggins right um so it's like actually we can recognize Mary's tone of voice, right, rather than a black rider's tone of voice. 
So that's where we got to last time. Let's look at the very end of the chapter. Frodo sprang out of the wagon to greet him. So there you are at last, said Mary. I was beginning to wonder if you would turn up at all today, and I was just going back to supper. When it grew foggy, I came across and rode up towards stock to see if you had fallen in any ditches. But I'm blessed if I know which way you have come. Where did you find them, Mr. Maggot? In your duck pond? No, I caught them trespassing, said the farmer, and nearly set my dogs on them. But they'll tell you all the story, I've no doubt. Now, if you'll excuse me, Mr. Mary and Mr. Frodo and all, I'd best be turning for home. Mrs. Maggot will be worriting with the night getting thick. He backed the wagon into the lane and turned it. Well, good night to you all, he said. It's been a queer day and no mistake. But all's well as ends well, though perhaps we should not say that until we reach our own doors. I'll not deny that I'll be glad now when I do. He lit his lanterns and got up. Suddenly he produced a large basket from under the seat. I was nearly forgetting, he said. Mrs. Maggot put this up for Mr. Baggins with her compliments. He handed it down and moved off, followed by a chorus of thanks and good nights. They watched the pale rings of light round his lanterns as they dwindled into the foggy night. Frodo, suddenly Frodo laughed. From the covered basket he held, the scent of mushrooms was rising. Um, yeah, uh, uh, John, I, I agree that worriting is a great hobbitry type word. It is. Worriting is a wonderful uh, word there. I'm, I'm uh, a big fan uh, of that as well. Um, Yes. Oh, and Lincoln, of course, uh, I, you're right. We do recognize the voice of we have Rob English reading it to us. Um, but that's the really cool thing about his use of Mr. of Mr. Baggins, right, is that again, we don't even need that. Whether we're listening to the audiobook and we hear, uh, we also hear it in Mary's voice, or whether we're reading it on the page, we get the, the cue at the same time, right, that, 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 that instantaneous uh, evaporation of, the, uh, uh, of the, the, the fear of that moment. Um, okay, uh, <laughs> Tony says, the moment when he smells the mushrooms is one of my favorite moments in the book. Yeah, uh, there is so much there, uh, Tony, isn't there? I mean, think about, think about the basket of mushrooms. Like, think in the context of what we were looking at last time uh, with Farmer Maggot and um, Farmer Maggot's uh, discretion his courtesy and his generosity, right? As I was emphasizing before, you know, not only has he, um, you know, forgiven Frodo for acting the way that he did when he was a lad, you can see that Farmer Maggot doesn't hold it against him at all, right? It's not even like, well, there was a grievance, but I'm going to let it go, right? He, 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 like, no harm was really done, right? Um, and uh, and he's you know he's like he's like the opposite of the ogre that uh, Frodo thought him to be, uh, and instead we see how uh, how how he goes out of his way to help them, and how he um, you know how how strong even before he has that what he believes to be that final confrontation by the fairy, uh, even though it doesn't turn out to be, um, how he's willing to jeopardize himself for the sake of his guests, um, and this final touch right. Um, as the scent of mushrooms rises from the covered basket, right? That final moment of, of, of grace, right? It's almost like, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, it, uh, the scent of the mushrooms would seem to uh, uh, be a, a tangible sign of 
farmer maggot's grace and forgiveness, right? Uh, and his uh, his his quite peculiar generosity. Um, that they would gift Frodo with mushrooms, right? Is sort of the final, uh, you know, with uh, uh, with Mrs. Maggot's compliments, right? Um, is really sort of the final uh, uh, indicator of you know this this sort of final inside joke between them, uh, right? Done with uh, uh, with kindness and generosity, um, and here's the to me the really interesting thing, right? The chapter title, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. Um, at first, of course, it's, you know, we have them at the beginning of the chapter deciding which way to go and decide to, you know, to take the shortcut across country, and they end up at Farmer Maggots, right? So in the one sense, A Shortcut to Mushrooms is a description of their path over the course of the chapter, right? Ending up at Farmer Maggots Farm. Um, but Farmer Maggots Farm are not the mushrooms that we end with, right? These are the mushrooms that we end with. And it, it, it makes me think, in a sense, these are the mushrooms in question, right? Um, that these mushrooms are in this way sort of the symbol of what um, what in the end their shortcut brought them to, right? Their shortcut didn't just bring them to the, ho- the home of Farmer Maggot, right? It brought them, uh, uh, you know, into the, you know, the the... The generosity, hospitality, um, courtesy, and generosity of the maggot family, and these mushrooms are the the tangible sign of that, right? Um, so that thinking about where they started the chapter, right after they woke up from the elves and they're setting. I remember their their first you know trip through the forest and how badly everything was going, and then the the hearing of the the, the black rider and their their continual fear. Um, and that shift from the the wild woodland right to the to the to the to the settled agricultural shire into farmer maggot's home, and this uh, covered basket of mushrooms with this uh, uh, this domestic delicious scent rising up from it um, is you know sort of the final the extreme end of that. I mean it's it's it is the end of their of their journey there. Um, so anyway, I I I I. I I, Tony, I love that moment too. It's uh, it's a uh, it's a wonderful moment. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Irinda says uh, Frodo did go the long way around to the mushrooms of friendship with all of those years of thinking of Maggot as an ogre figure. Yeah, yeah, uh, he does. Um, and that's kind of the the there there is some irony there, right? You know the the. Uh, um, Yes, Frodo could have taken a shortcut to friendship with Farmer Maggot much sooner than he did, right? Um, okay, uh, other... I love Farmer Maggot's understatement, right? Look at the way that he talks here. Um, he immediately connects with Mary's joking tone, right? Where did you find the Mr. Maggot? In your duck pond, right? Um, you know, he can't imagine where the... Because, of course, Mary, of course, has no context, right? He just knows they were marching across country, so, of course, he's been looking for them on the road, right? Because that's where they were supposed to be. Uh, and when they didn't turn up, uh, he went... He rode up towards Stock to see if they had fallen in, in any ditches. Like, did they did they stumble off the causeway, right? Into the, into the, into the marsh, 
uh, in the dark and the fog. Or it's he's trying to think of some explanation for why they would have not shown up yet, right? Uh, what possible, you know, difficulty could they have had in crossing the Shire that would justify the delay that he has seen, right? Um, and uh, uh, and so he's joking with Farmer Maggot, and Farmer Maggot immediately adopts that same register. I caught him trespassing and nearly set my dogs on him, right? Um, the way that Farmer Maggot can flip from being, you know, resolute but afraid and facing what he believes to be the Black Rider, right, um, to joking with Mr. Mary like this um, uh, is, uh, is... is and, and But then all the way through, he continues with... Uh, with with understatement, right? Um, Mrs. Maggot will be worriting with the night getting thick. Like, Mrs. Maggot, she's going to worry about me, right? Why is Mrs. Maggot going to worry about me? Um, what he leaves unsaid, of course, is Mrs. Maggot is going to worry about me because there are, like, strange and obviously violent strangers out hunting hobbits. Uh, you've already ticked him off earlier today, and if he sees you again, he'll probably kill you, as he kind of tried to do at the end of your first meeting with him in the lane, right? So that, I think, is what is really wording uh, Mrs. Maggot, which he knows full well, but he doesn't acknowledge that, right? It's, oh, you know, she gets all worried when I'm out after dark in the fog, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, so I gotta, I, I, I have to make sure to get home for that reason, not for any other Um and, it, you know, it's been a queer day, and no mistake, uh, yeah, it has been an unusual day, right? I can't imagine Farmer Megan has had too many days quite like this in his life, right? Um, uh, I, I mean, how many times has he, like, smuggled refugees uh, to the ferry who were being hunted by, like, strange foreigners uh, from outside the Shire, uh, right on the you know the same day that these shire these uh, you know that these strangers showed up at his farm saying that they were hunting him and offering to bring gold if he would turn in you know a fellow hobbit to these uh, to these outlanders like that can't have happened too many times in Farmer Maggot's life um, and yet his statement on it it's been a queer day and no mistake but all's well as ends well right okay all's well really <laughs> you sure Farmer Maggot everything's well you know but again it's very. Uh, uh, it's very understated, but which is again part of both his courtesy and his courage as well, which I think we can see uh, in some really fun ways there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, and but notice how he does still acknowledge danger. He's not just oblivious. I mean, obviously he's not oblivious, but he's not just flippant either, right? Um, Perhaps we should not say that until we reach our own doors, he adds, after all's well as ends well, right? Um, uh, so, you know, there is there is definitely an acknowledgement, you know, and his like, you know, I won't, uh, I'll not deny that I'll be glad now when I do. Um, you know, he's acknowledging there's still a non-zero chance that I'm going to be overtaken and killed between here and home, right? So I'll be pretty glad when I get, uh, when I get home. Um so yeah, Mario, exactly. Good-natured, but not foolishly optimistic. I agree. I think I think that's one of the things that we can see there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. So anyway, so so much that we can see in Farmer Maggot. So much, uh, uh, so much, so much awesomeness there. Well, let's move on to the beginning of chapter five, and uh, uh, what we see. Notice the description. 
They turned down the fairy lane, which was straight and well-kept and edged with large whitewashed stones. In a hundred yards or so, it brought them to the river bank, where there was a broad wooden landing stage. A large flat ferry boat was moored beside it. The white bollards near the water's edge glimmered in the light of two lamps on high posts. Behind them, the mists in the flat fields were now above the hedges. But the water before them was dark, with only a few curling wisps like steam among the reeds by the bank. There seemed to be less fog on the further side. Mary led the pony over a gangway onto the ferry, and the others followed. Mary then pushed slowly off with a long pole. The brandy wine flowed slow and broad before them. On the other side, the bank was steep, and up at a winding path climbed from the further landing. Lamps were twinkling there. Behind loomed up the buck hill, and out of it, through stray shrouds of mist, shone many round windows, yellow and red. They were the windows of Brandy Hall, the ancient home of the Brandy Bucks. All right. Um, what do you notice? Focus on that first paragraph in particular, right? What do you notice about the description of their approach to the ferry, especially in the context, remember where we just were, right? Remember the scene we've just been through from Farmer Maggot's house to the ferry, or to the meeting with Mary anyway, right? Which happens before they get to the, uh, to the, to, to the ferry lane proper, right? Um, remember all that, that sense of exposure and vulnerability, right? As they were, you know, just Frodo hiding in the wagon, right? You know, under blankets and there's, uh, you know, they're, they're exposed out riding very slowly and as quietly as they can through the dark and the fog, uh, you know, and the echoing night so that they don't want to go too loud so that they can be heard. They don't want to light the lamps so that they can be seen because there they are up on the causeway visible for a really long distance. Um, uh, even though, of course, cloaked by fog this uh, this 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 night. Um, so yeah, the description Ambrosius, I agree, it does sound very peaceful and orderly compared to the fright they've had recently. No, notice the other um, uh, 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 notice some of the details there, right? Um, how how it's described? They turned down the ferry lane which was straight and well-kept and edged with large whitewashed stones. That's not scary, right? <laughs> That's just not scary. Notice how uh, tame everything is now, right? Um, now that that moment of fear has passed, it's like you look around yourself and you realize, oh yeah, yeah we're, still, we're still in the Shire, right? There's nothing, there's nothing objectively frightening about our surroundings here, right? Uh, there's a neat, straight road, right? Even the rocks on the side of the road are uh, are painted white. They're, they're whitewashed, right? Um, so that everything looks, you know, sort of clean and cozy and neat. Um, and there's a riverbank with a broad wooden landing stage and the f large flat ferry boat. There's uh, white bollards, right? Glimmering in the two lamps. Notice the whiteness. The whiteness really jumps out at me, right? The whiteness and the glimmering light. Um, we didn't get anything like that. There was, there was, there was. The, even just thinking of them as landmarks, right? The 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 white stones down the lane and the white bollards, right? The 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 wooden posts in the water, right? Holding up the the uh, the edge of the ferry. That you know the the pier there. Um, everything is you know bright and 
clearly visible in the darkness, which is clearly why they're whitewashed and painted white, right? Um, and uh, uh, so again, the 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 opposite of that sort of like secret, closed in, we must hide kind of attitude that we've had, that sense of vulnerability. Um, and then, of course, as several of you have pointed out, the significance of the diminishing of the fog, right? The uh, behind them. The mists in the flat fields were now above the hedges, right? So we've got you know, the mists that are gr- growing along the ground, right? And the mists are rising. So you can see the mist now above the hedges. But there isn't mist in front of them. There's just a little bit of mist on the water. And there seems to be less fog. They can tell that it's less foggy over on the Buckland side than it is on their side. And it is... Um, uh, um, it's... It definitely seems, it feels sort of symbolic, right, as they're passing out of the... Now, now, uh, someone was asking... uh, Oh, yeah, Tony was saying he's not convinced that the fog is natural. Um, It feels like a Dementor-ish effect of the Nazgul. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, JJ48 says that, you know, the fog is completely natural, but lends a very unnatural feel to the scene. Um, yeah, I, 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 JJ, I agree with that. I do think it's natural fog. Um, it does, it does give a kind of an unnatural feeling, right? It, it is kind of consistent with that kind of feeling. Um, but I don't think it's there that he's implying that the uh, the fog is actually generated by the Black Riders, but it's associated with them, right? And certainly associated with their with their fear in particular. Um, and all of that is clearing up, and there on the other side, right, of the river, we see Brandy Hall rising up. Um, you know, this sort of bastion of, of, of hobbit civilization, uh, and there is no fog around Brandy Hall. Um, so, yeah, I do think, for those of you who are suggesting Irindis and Sarah, that uh, there's significance to... You know the fog being less on the other side. I definitely agree. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> this was I forget, somebody else had made this comment before, and I can't remember who it was. Um, but uh, John Osglas, of course, is particularly sensitive to the fact of the potential uh, pun involved in this first sentence here. They turned down the ferry lane. Right, um, you know that it's 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 hard not to hear f a i r y. Right, um, yes, yes, the fairy lane. Um, uh, it's not a fairy lane, right? In a sense, it's like the opposite of a fairy lane. Um, there's a kind of an, an inversion to that. The world that they're leaving, you know, the world of the marish that they've been riding through, you know, the dark, uh, uh, the dark, foggy night. Um, with where, like, unknown hunter spirits are out, you know, uh, stalking them uh, and may appear out of the darkness at any time. That's more like fairy, right? And now the fairy lane, right, F-E-R-R-Y, uh, is leading back into the into the into the into the mortal realms, right? Back to to the normal world, and that's what they see on the far. You know, that's what that's what Brandy Hall is, right? Brandy Hall is 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 the heart of the uh, the 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 normal mundane world, right? Um, but uh, anyway, it's uh, it's it's um, so I think there's actually kind of a 
a neat little sort of inversion to the pun. Do I think he meant the pun? Uh, no, not exactly. I don't think that he meant that. Uh, I mean, it's just the lane that goes down to the ferry. What else are you going to call it, right? But the ferry lane. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm laughing because I can't help but remember uh, this a paper that I once, uh, an English 101 paper I once graded uh, when we were talking about Midsummer Night's Dream and they talked about Titania, the queen of the fairies, F-E-R-R-I-E-S, uh, which is one of, the, one of the funniest typos I ever had in a, in a, in a student paper. Uh, the queen of the fairies, like it makes us like, what was she, like a union boss or something? I, I couldn't quite make out what that was supposed to be. Uh, but I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, um, okay, good. Now let's, uh, let's carry on. Uh, let's look at the second sentence there. Archimago, I agree with you that that uh, Mary's slowly pushing off with the Mary is unhurried, right? This is a you know we are we are we are going towards uh, civilization, right? We're returning home. This is Mary returning back to his home. Mary, you know, using the ferry to cross, even in the middle of a foggy night. This is totally routine. So apart from the fact that everybody else was acting a little bit weird, right? There's nothing weird going on from Mary's point of view. Uh, and the sort of calming effect of uh, Mary acting totally normal, uh, I think, is, is, is important. And you're right. There's no, there's no hurry there. Uh, there's no sense of fear. On the other side, the bank was steep. And up it, a winding path climbed from the further landing. Um, it is hard for me to get away from this upward. Uh, the, the whole description is up and up, right? They, they, they cross the river, and then there's the bank, the steep bank that they have to go up. And then behind it is the hill, right? I mean, everything is up above them as they're rising up. And remember how the mist was sort of lying down low in the in the lowlands right on either side of the causeway and the, though it was rising up above the hedges right so there's this again this other sense not just of the fog stops you know at the river but brandy hall is still above it right the tide of the of the fog has not yet reached as high as brandy hall um you know that this sort of bastion of hobbit of hobbitry, right? Of hobbit civilization, um, still rises above the fog, and it hasn't hasn't reached it yet. Um, and again, that that sort of that that sense of the altitude, that emphasis on the altitude uh, as they're climbing up out of the river, really seems to me to uh, to, to to enhance that uh, that impression. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And uh, Ambrosius and Aurelianus, I agree. Um, <clears throat> that uh, ending on the image of the bright windows of Brandy Hall emphasizes that other friendly people are watching now. If something comes after them, they won't be alone. Um, right, exactly. They're not only returning to sort of the friendly world, they're return, they're, they're, they are in the midst of, of people, right? The, um, Buckland, there are a lot of hobbits in Buckland, right? Um, they are not isolated in the wilderness uh, any longer. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm looking at the comment that Anarwin made in the Twitch chat. Uh, the description of the hill, right? If 
Brandy Hall, the hill rising up, and she says it's it's the heart of hobbitry on earth, right? I don't know if necessarily that's true. I think that the you know uh, the hill and Bag End are the heart of hobbitry on earth, but I like the parallel, of course, to Karen Amroth um, in Lothlorien. That's good. But uh, okay, <clears throat> let's keep going. This is where the narrator pauses to give us the history of Buckland, um, and of course, this is interesting to learn more about Buckland as we approach it, right? Um, but it's an interesting moment, too, for the narrator to pause in this way. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I kind of don't want to sort of take that take that for granted. The fact that we're, again, thinking about um, the comment, Archimago, that you were making about the um, the lack of hurry, right? Yes, it's true. Uh, and Crystal, you're right, of course, Mary hasn't seen the bike riders. He doesn't know that there is any reason to hurry exactly. Um, but the narrator is not in a hurry either, right? The narrator uh, is going to, you know, we're going to pause and, 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 and dilate on this little historical lesson, right? Even though, of course, the black riders are still pursuing and right after this long narrative digression, well, I mean, fairly long, like three paragraphs, we're going to come back to the fact they're going to see a black rider off in the distance, right? Um but you know, so this is a this is a this is a transitional uh, uh, moment, right? And in that transitional moment, we get this uh, this moment of history. Long ago, Gorindad Oldbuck, head of the Oldbuck family, one of the oldest in the Marish or indeed in the Shire, had crossed the river, which was the original boundary of the land eastwards. Um, I love the start of this with long ago, right? This is a story that we're getting. Right. Um, let me tell you. This is not. Uh, uh, allow me to give you some background history. Right. Let me tell you the story of Buckland and the Brandy Bucks. He built and excavated Brandy Hall, changed his name to Brandy Buck, and settled down to become master of what was virtually a small independent country. His family grew and grew, and after his days continued to grow, until Brandy Hall occupied the whole of the low hill and had three large front doors, many side doors, and about a hundred windows. The Brandy Bucks and their numerous dependents then began to burrow, and later to build, all round about. That was the origin of Buckland, a thickly inhabited strip between the river and the old forest, a sort of colony from the Shire. Its chief village was Bucklebury, clustering in the banks and slopes behind Brandy Hall. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Gorindad is a pretty epic name, uh, John Osglass, I agree. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so um, it's... Uh, what do you make of this story? Well, l- let, me, let, me, let me pause for a second. Why did he go? What, one of the things that kind of fascinates me about this story is what we're not told about this story, right? What was Gorindad Oldbuck's motivation, right? We're told a story long ago, right? We're told the story, but we're not really told a story. We're not told the whole story anyway, right? Um, why did he cross the river? Which was the original boundary of the land eastwards and a very sensible boundary, what's more, right? I mean, think about it. Um... What, what we know how hobbits in general think about rivers, right? Uh, uh, 
And anyway, again, it's a very natural boundary. The The Brandywine River is no joke. I mean, it's a serious river. It's not very swift flowing, as we see from the description of the ferry, but, but it's a big river. Um, so big that no horse has ever swum it that they know of, right? So, I mean, it's... Um, that's a pretty significant geographical boundary. It's, you know, when you're thinking about the, uh, you know, um, times of, of travel almost entirely by horseback or on foot, right? Um, so, okay, he crosses this very significant boundary, and what does he find? What, what's on the other side? The old forest, right? Which is pretty spooky. Um, but there's this narrow strip of land between the old forest and the river. That sounds like a really bad place to live, actually, right? Cut off from the rest of the Shire. You've got this whole honking river between you and the rest of the Shire. So if something does, say, invade you out of the old forest, right, or something bad happens, nobody's going to be able to get to you, right? You're on your own over there. I mean, you might be really close to the Marish, but that's the frontier, right? Now you've you've it's it's you know, there's 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 a significant gulf, well, river, uh between between them and and there's the old forest, right? So they're going to they're going to snuggle up right against the old forest. Uh and um uh and and I, again, it's it's not an obvious move, right? Even if he were if his motivations were merely Expansionism, right? Uh, which doesn't seem to be a major Hobbit impulse, frankly, right? If it was, if Gorondad Oldbuck merely wanted to acquire more and better land for himself and carve out his own kingdom, right, then he was a pretty weird Hobbit to begin with. Uh, that's just not how most of them think. Um, we get no, very little evidence of any other Hobbits thinking like that. Um, so we don't know. I mean, I, I don't. Um, uh, it's possible. I mean, so Archimago is emphasizing two lines, right? That he was master of, of a virtually in a small independent country, uh, and uh, um, no, sorry, yeah, that's the one that he was master of what was virtually a small independent country. Does make it sound like he was ambitious, possibly, possibly, um, but that's not how it begins. That is to say, he just—it's just his family, right? I mean, he picks up his family, and because he—he doesn't um, now. They, it's the Brandy Bucks and their numerous uh, dependents, right? Um, uh, but that's after his family grew and grew, and after his days continued to grow, right? So in Gorondad Old Buck's days, it was just his family, and presumably he had a fairly big family, but. Um, uh, but he didn't have a kingdom. It grew into a small independent country, right? But it's I, it's hard for me to see Gorondad being like focused on conquest or like annexing land necessarily. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no kinslaying was involved, Sharon, absolutely. Um, uh John Oskos is wondering if Gorondad was friends with Tom Bombadil. Who knows? Maybe so. Um, yeah, now Tony is wondering if there might have been some kind of grievance. Um, uh, yeah, the old bucks were one of the oldest families in the Shire, right? Um, and then he, he leaves, right, and sets up on his own across the river. 
I can believe that. A grievance, that is. I find I can believe that more quickly than I can believe that he just wanted a newer, bigger, better kingdom of his own. That seems so uncharacteristic that it's hard to imagine. But a hobbit who says, fine, I see I'm not wanted here. I'm going to, you know, strike out on my own and take my family over across the river and we'll set up on our own. Um, that seems... I, like, I, can, I can't see him doing it uh, in a sort of acquisitive lust, right? In just a desire to gain more land for himself. But I can see him doing it in a pet, um, you know, being offended or uh, affronted and deciding to move his family across the river. That seems to me easier to believe uh, than that he just wanted to, to uh, uh, increase his own personal power. Um, JJ's thinking maybe the Sackville Baggins has moved in next to him. Uh, possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Mariel says Lobelia could totally have founded a new kingdom in a snit. Uh, yes, yes. You can definitely see her doing that kind of thing, right? Um, there's another interesting little detail, though, that we'll get in the next paragraph that, uh, that I think uh, relates uh, to this question. Um, but, uh, well, let's go ahead and look at that. The people in the Marish were friendly with the Bucklanders, and the authority of the Master of the Hall, as the head of the Brandybuck family was called, was still acknowledged by the farmers between Stock and Rushy. There's a, one word in that sentence that I find particularly interesting, and, and that I'm not quite sure what it means. I'll do it again. The people in the Marish were friendly with the Bucklanders, and the authority of the Master of the Hall, as the head of the Brandybuck family was called, was still acknowledged by the farmers between Stock and Rushy. Sharon, exactly, still, was still acknowledged. What does that mean? Uh, I can think, yeah, Tony sees it too. I can see, I can see two different meanings of that. Right, so still acknowledged, ev- like um, even today, right? Like the 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 you know, even though Buckland has become this separate place, that but it seems to me to suggest still even since before they moved, right? So the old Bucks had authority in the Marish, right? Before they moved, and then after they moved across the river and developed their own private country. Um, still, the farmers between Stock and Rushy acknowledge the authority of the master of the hall. Um, therefore, again, so coming back to the leaving in a snit theory, um, he, the old Buck family seemed to have been the, the authorities there. Um, I don't know if that makes it easier or harder to figure out or to guess why exactly they would have left, right? Um, uh, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't know. I mean, again, I just I'm, I'm not sure I understand the significance of the still there. Um, still, because they are, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Again, I feel like we're um, we're being told a sort of a tantalizing part of the story, but not the whole story, and that's kind of interesting, right? 
think about that in, again in the context of what the narrator is doing. We interrupt this moment, you know, what has been a really tense moment to this point, to tell you the story of Buckland. Except having interrupted you, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, right? Uh, I'm going to leave a lot of it still kind of mysterious. Um, Marielle, I agree that the still does imply an ancient authority or privilege, right? There is this sense, it's traditional. Um, uh, The authority of the master of the hall isn't enforced in the modern generations, right? And it's not like you better acknowledge the authority of the master of the hall or he's going to come over and, you know, beat you up or take your stuff or whatever or sell you out or what, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it is, it is a custom, right? Um, they have been accustomed for generations uh, to acknowledge the authority of the master of the hall and they still do, right? Um, so it certainly does give that, uh, that, that sense. Um, Emma Thorne makes a really great point um, that says it also kind of implies that he'd lost some authority among others. That's a, that's, a, that's a very sensitive reading, Emma Thorne. I think you're right. The authority of the master of the hall was still acknowledged by the farmers between Stock and Rushy, even if it's no longer acknowledged by the other farmers, you know, more widely roundabout. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, that seems to me very, uh, very plausible. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, we didn't even talk about the changing of the name. Uh, the changing of the name to uh, uh, to Brandy Buck uh, from Old Buck. Um, and the changing of the name is even more significant given the, the antiquity, right? Of course, he took the antiquity out of his name, right? He took the old out of his name. Um, and it was the old name, right? One of the oldest families in the entire Shire. Um so, um, so yeah, I, I uh, um, the changing of the name shows the significance of that transition, right? We're no longer just the old bucks, but we happen to live over here. We are making a deliberate change, right? We are, we are changing the fortunes of our family. We're changing the identity of our family, um, having crossed the Brandy Buck, the sorry, the Brandywine River, we're going to become Brandy Bucks. Um, this shift in identity again—it's not just a, we want more land, and so we're adding this to our portfolio, right? We are we are changing. We are changing our family. We are changing ourselves um, by by going over there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, Tony suggests that maybe the conflict was over the size of the old Buck family uh, and they needed more room than the Marish had without running up against the other landholders. Um, certainly the one thing that is emphasized, again, going back for a second to this first paragraph, the primary thing that is emphasized about the Brandy Buck family is its size, right? Um, its antiquity is the first thing that's mentioned, right? Um, the, the, that, that it's one of the oldest in the Marish or indeed in the Shire. But the size... Of the family, uh, the fact that this one family grows into what is virtually an independent country, um, and uh, you know the, the 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 enormous size of the Brandy Hall complex, right? Um, you know the the front doors, the side doors, and the hundred windows. Um, the place is huge because the the Brandy Bucks are so numerous. Um, that does Tony lend some credence to the possibility 
that the move was just because they were too they, they, they wouldn't fit in the marriage. There wasn't enough land in the marriage. So that again it wasn't necessarily um, it wasn't necessarily acquisitiveness, right? It wasn't about him wanting or needing more land, um, in the sense of just like wanting to increase his wealth or to increase his power, but instead that he was wanting to um, that he, he just didn't have room for his family. They certainly are fruitful and multiplying. Uh, Lady Shmebulak, I completely agree with that. Um, and Aaron, that's a great question. Um, Aaron Thiessen asks, do we have any other instances of hobbits changing their names? Under what circumstances do hobbits change their names? I'm trying to think of other examples of hobbits changing their names. Not of Tolkien changing the names of hobbits, which he does all the time, right, in his early drafts in The Return of the Shadow. We were having lots of fun with that. Um, Now, hang on. Don't cheat, people. That is, don't cheat and think about name changes that are going to happen in the future. I want to think about name changes that have happened to this point. It is, of course, a worthwhile thing to notice that in the early Fourth Age, there will be a bunch of Hobbit name changes. Uh, as uh, as Marielle is pointing out, Gamgee, the, the Gamgee family name is going to be changed to Gardner. Um, we're going to get the um, you know the the Fair Barons, right? Um, but that's not happened yet. Right. Um, I can only think of one example off the top of my head. Um, and uh, that is, I'm thinking of uh, Bull Roarer Took, right? Now, it's a nickname, not really a change of his name, right? But when he... Uh, um, when he becomes, you know, when he has that moment, that transformative moment, when um, when Bander, when Banderbrus took becomes a hero at the Battle of the Greenfield and is given the name Bullroarer, right? Um, that's a significant moment of uh, change, right? Um, yeah. And the Sackville Bagginses. Maybe. In a sense, in a sense. Um, though the fact that they. Yeah, no, just Gerontius is the old Took. The old Took is a nickname, too. But even that, it's not exactly a nickname. I mean, or it's not even exactly a change. Yeah, exa- as uh, uh, Mungli is pointing out, we do have uh, lots of nicknames, right? Um, you know, Mary and Pippin and Fatty. Uh, the old Took seems much more like that, right? Um, whereas Bullroarer seems to me... It, I think the reason, the chief reason that seems to me different is because it's associated with 
um, his heroism, right? Uh, and, you know, when he becomes this larger-than-life figure at the Battle of the Greenfields. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's not unprecedented, but it's unusual, I would say. And it does seem to mark when a family, when you change your family name, um, it marks a really significant moment, right? I mean, as it will for Sam, right? When Sam, uh, you know, when Sam's family becomes uh, uh, becomes known as the Gardeners, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, okay, sorry. Let's, uh, let's, let's go back to the peculiarities of Bucklanders. We only got to the first sentence here. But most of the folk of the old Shire regarded the Bucklanders as peculiar. Half foreigners, as it were. Though, as a matter of fact, they were not very different from the other hobbits of the Four Farthings. Except in one point. They were fond of boats, and some of them could swim. Their land was originally unprotected from the east, but on that side they had built a hedge, the High Hay. It had been planted many generations ago, and was now thick and tall, for it was constantly tended. It ran all the way from Brandywine Bridge, in a big loop curving away from the river to Hayes End, where the Withywindle flowed out of the forest into the Brandywine, well over twenty miles from end to end. But of course, it was not a complete protection. The forest drew close to the hedge in many places. The Bucklanders kept their doors locked after dark, and that also was not usual in the Shire. Um, <laughs> I see several of you making bingo boffin jokes uh, from Lotro. Um, yeah, look at the the high hay. I find really interesting. So. You're the Brandy Bucks, right? You've set up in this new country, but there's this really creepy forest right there, right? In fact, your whole land is just this strip of land between the creepy forest and the river. So what do you do, right? You feel vulnerable. You're worried that something scary is going to come out of the forest, and get you so what do you do um you plant a hedge you plant a hedge yeah see Freda I was in fact thinking of um of the wall in Game of Thrones right that's what you do when you're really worried (laughs) about something coming Uh, you know if you feel like you're exposed and something is going to come you don't plant a hedge why do you plant a hedge by the way what's the point of a hedge it's a boundary it marks a boundary yes Um, it does grant privacy it keeps out neighbors. It's hard to... I mean, it's hard to break through a hedge. Uh, so, I mean, it, it does kind of keep people out. Um, I mean, a, a real hedge. Like a serious hedge. And this hedge is quite tall. Right. Um, Marielle, yes. To keep animals in or out. Absolutely. Right. You you, you would use... Um, 
you would use a, a hedge to keep in sheep, maybe, right? Um, so that's what they do, right? Um, they put up a privacy hedge that would keep animals from wandering into the old forest may keep animals out. I mean, it may help to, like, keep wolves out, for instance. Um, it's going to mean that your fields are unlikely to be routine hunting ground for predators coming out of the forest. So I'm not trying to say there's no utility to the to the, to the high hay at all, right? Um, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's clearly... Um, it's not a wall, right? Their impulse is not to build a wall. Um, it's not to erect a fortification. That's not, um, that's not their attitude, right? And yeah, Stephanie, it's a natural barrier, right? They plant the hedge and it grows and they tend it, um, right? But it's not, um, it's, not, it's not a hand-constructed wall, right? It, they, they're not hauling stone up to build a wall. Um, and yeah, Ambrosius, or Ambrosius Aurelianus, it does also keep kids from wandering into the old forest, right? Uh, apparently, unless they can get keys to the to the secret entrance, which of course, apparently, lots of people can do. Um, but um, yeah, Tony thinks it's uh, very hobbity to build a wall out of living things instead of stone, which it it, it kind of is. Um, but uh, um, yeah. Mary Alice points out, you, you can't post guards on a hedge. Yes, you cannot look over a hedge. You cannot walk on top of the hedge to 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 do... To, 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 um, no, you can't do any of those things. Uh, and in fact, the hedge is going to shield the forest from them even more f- completely than it's going to sort of stop it the other way around. In other words... Um, It sounds like what the Brandybucks did was not build a fortification against the forest. What they built was a screen, right? Which, in part, in large part, shields them from seeing the forest. Notice the description down here. Of course, it was not a complete protection. So what does that mean? In what sense, narrator, was it not a complete protection? It was not a complete protection because sometimes things can get in, right? No, look what he emphasizes. It was not a complete protection. The forest drew close to the hedge in many places. There are some spots where, despite the hedge, you can still see the forest. I mean, you're still totally aware of the presence of the forest, right? So it's not a complete protection. Um, The the high hay fails to... uh, uh, make it impossible for the Brandy Bucks to be reminded that there is an old forest just a few yards away from them, which seems to be kind of what they're going for. Um, in fact, it seems to me that they... Uh, it's another example, going back to Gildor's comment, as we've been doing and as we were talking about, thanks to Wes's comment at the beginning of the class, they're shutting themselves in. They're not shutting the forest out, right? They're shutting, the, they're shutting themselves in. And this is then sort of complemented by the fact that they keep their doors locked after dark, right? In their houses at night, they shut themselves in. In all of Buckland, they have shut themselves in. 
Um, again, you plant a hedge in order to like keep your livestock in the field, right? They've planted a hedge all the way around their land, like to keep them in, right? Um, so uh, I think that's that's exactly it, out of sight, out of mind. That's that's exactly the um, that's exactly the kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So again, and and Crystal, I agree. There definitely is a, is a defensive advantage to it, right? I mean, it clearly like the keeping out of wolves and stuff. That's that's not an insignificant thing. I think that's important, um, and and certainly a benefit. Let's keep the predators on that side and our livestock on this side. Is is, is clearly a very functional use of the hedge, um, but uh, but if they thought of the the high hay as a real protection, right? If they felt that they were safe behind the ramparts of the high hay, they wouldn't lock their doors at night, right? Um, the fact that they lock their doors shows they don't feel secure, right? Um, they're secured from confronting the reality of the old forest on a regular occasion, uh, on regular occasions, but they're not, um, they're still not completely safe. And so they lock their doors. Um, Okay. Running out of time. I'm going to get two more passages quickly. Looking behind. The ferry boat moved slowly across the water. The Buckland shore drew nearer. Sam was the only member of the party who had not been over the river before. He had a strange feeling as the slow gurgling stream slipped by. His old life lay behind in the mists. Dark adventure lay in front. He scratched his head, and for a moment had a passing wish that Mr. Frodo could have gone on living quietly at Bag End. Let's just look at that for a second here. Um, this is a really important transitional moment for Sam, right? Um, you know, Sam knows the land well within 20 miles of, of, of Hobbiton, but that was the limit of his geography, right? Sam has long since passed the boundary where he, uh, you know, where he's further away from home than he's ever been before. And I love that moment in the movies. They captured that really. I was so glad that they did that, um, uh, that moment with Sam. Like, if I take one more step, I'll be further away from home than I've ever been. I, was, I, I, I love that moment in the film. Sam's long since passed that. Right, he's seen elves. He's, I mean, he's in the wild land of adventure now, right, and has been for some time. But this is a big deal, right? Sam is the only member of the party who had not been over the river before, and so it's in Sam's eyes that we get the crossing of the river. It's through Sam's eyes that we see what a significant frontier is being crossed. They're leaving the Shire, right? Frodo's been talking about leaving the Shire. Um, that decision to um, to leave the Shire behind safe and secure and to go out into adventure seems a long time ago now, right? We're in chapter five, that was in chapter two, and we have discovered, in fact, that it's not as simple as that, right? That danger has come and invaded the Shire, and the Shire itself has been sort of transformed now, you know, as, as they've been realizing it's not their Shire, right? And, and, uh, and, and, and evil has encroached and has been pursuing them, and you know, their whole way of looking at the Shire and at the world has been changing. And yet, crossing the river 
and leaving geographically leaving the Shire is still a really important moment, but it's a moment that strikes us most forcibly through Sam. Because for the others, it's just like, yes, it's leaving the Shire, but it's going over to visit Buckland again, right? Frodo used to live here. Uh, Pippin's been here lots and lots of times, right? So um, for them, this is no big deal. And they don't think of it as a big deal, but it is a big deal. And of course, it reminds us what a big deal again it was for Gorondad Oldbuck to have done it in the first place, right? To have taken that step to say, I'm not just going to move to a different part of the Shire. I'm going to leave the Shire and establish this new separate land. Um, Sam sees this moment symbolically, right? As he's crossing the river, he had a strange feeling as the slow stream slipped by. His old life lay behind in the mists. Dark adventure lay in front. So notice that in Sam's mind, things are reversed, right? In that first paragraph, as we were looking at the description as they're approaching the ferry and everything, it was the opposite, right? Dark adventure was behind in the darkness and the mist, right? And whitewashed stones and white painted bollards were leading them down uh, the cute little path to the ferry across to Brandy Hall and those nice lights and, and no fog, right? And uh, all that, you know. Sam sees it exactly backwards. He sees it exactly the other way around, right? Um, despite what the current circumstances may be and their fear of this evening, his old life is behind him and dark adventure is in front. It's not dark over there, right? There are lights in the hall and they can see it's all pleasant and civilized, but it's dark in the sense that he has no idea what's coming, right? He is going off into the unknown. They're all going off into the unknown as they have been learning, right? But only Sam is really aware of that, the significance of that, right? And he scratches his head and for a moment had a passing wish that Mr. Frodo could have gone on living quietly at Bag End. He doesn't wish that he had stayed behind. He doesn't even have a passing wish that he had stayed behind, right? But he does have a passing wish that it hadn't turned out this way, right? That Mr. Frodo hadn't left, um, hadn't had, had, that he hadn't had to leave, right? That he could have gone on living quietly. He couldn't have done, right, under the circumstances. But, you know, if maybe those circumstances could have been different. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sam has this desire for not adventure in itself but he has an, a, a desire for these higher things right for the elves it's you know sort of embodied in the elves um, but but he recognizes the, the significance he feels the love for the land and the life that he's leaving behind right because um, his old life is uh, he is leaving it behind, it is slipping away like the gurgling stream slipping by underneath him, right? His old life is never coming back. Um, he will return. Sam will make it back to the Shire, but he's never going to return to his old life, right? That's gone. Um, it has it has slipped away. So in that way, the str- the gurgling stream of the river that they're crossing, it's not just taking one more step and crossing a, a sort of an imaginary like map boundary, right? Um, the river becomes itself a symbol for this sort of, you know, flowing time in his old life passing away, and he can't just cross back 
it's not going to be the same. Um, the four hobbits stepped off the ferry. Mary was tying it up, and Pippin was already leading the pony up the path, when Sam, who had been looking back as if to take farewell of the Shire, said in a hoarse whisper, "'Look back, Mr. Frodo. Do you see anything?' On the far stage, under the distant lamps, they could just make out a figure. It looked like a dark black bundle left behind. But as they looked, it seemed to move and sway this, this way and that, as if searching the ground. Then it crawled, or went crouching, back into the gloom beyond the lamps. Um, the black bundle. So as Sam is looking back, right, thinking about the life that he is leaving behind and the dark adventure into which he is going and, uh, and his old life that is now slipped away, he, uh, it is that look back, that fond look of farewell to the Shire uh, that enables him to catch sight of the blood. None of the rest of them are looking back, right? All of them are looking forward to Brandy Hall. He is looking, you know, towards Brandy Hall. He is looking back uh, at the Shire that they're leaving behind, and that's what leads him to see it, see the Black Rider that's chasing them. And again, how uh, clear an indicator. Again, like, this symbol is, gets kind of extended, right? Why can't he, his old life is back on the river, the other side of the river behind him. Why can't he go back? Right? He can never go back. Why can't he go back? Because there's a black rider right there. Right? You know the uh, the evil that Sauron has sent. You know the evil of the Dark One that has invaded. Now even the Shire stands between Sam and his old life. Right? And he is going. It is driving him onwards, but it's also it's preventing him going back. Um, this is uh, this is this is irrevocable. Um, yes, Crystal, the black bundle is like somebody slamming a door behind them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and this, I think, might be the creepiest that the Black Riders have ever looked, right? Um, it looks like a dark black bundle. Again, it looked like a bundle the first time they saw it. Uh, on top of the horse. The very first description we got of the Black Rider was not... It didn't look like a guy, right? It didn't look like a person. It looked like a black bundle on top of a horse. And then we saw it acting creepily, right? Um, until that moment right before Gildor and the elves showed up when it's... Like the sniffing was kind of creepy. And then the crawling along the ground and sniffing... Um, was creepier still, right? Um, they were putting on their civilized airs, right? Using the elocution tips that they picked up from Gaffer Gamgee and stuff in the very careful, deliberate conversation that, that the Black Rider has with Farmer Maggot that we hear him report. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, this is the Black Riders on their worst behavior, right? Um, not trying to blend in, not trying to be non-alarming, as the Black Rider does seem to be trying to be non-alarming to Farmer Maggot at the beginning. Um, this is the Black Riders just sort of seen from a distance in their natural state. Uh, and what is their natural state? Not human, right? I mean, so it doesn't even look, it doesn't look like a person. It looks like a dark black bundle, right? And then it moves and sways, 
uh, as if searching the ground, right? But it's not just like a person might might move side to side, right? The moving and swaying gives it this like serpentine sense, right? And then it's crawling. Why is it crawling? Why does it crawl? There's no excuse for it to be crawling. It was crawling across the ground towards them because it was following their scent before, right? Why is it crawling now? Is it following their scent backwards? It's, it's presumably going to its horse. But the Black Rider chooses to go to its horse crawling or crouching or whatever. Um, anyway, the point is, this thing is not right. Right. This is not. And again, remember, we have no idea what this is. And then, you know, try to try to put yourself into Frodo and Sam and Pippin's position. Right. We don't know what the Black Riders are. Um, Gandalf's warning at the end of chapter two that the enemy has many spies. Right. And many ways of of of, of hearing news has prepared Frodo for the possibility that there might be some scouts that are sent in, right? There might be people, and and there's, there appear to be some of the big folk, right? They, they seem they seem to be human, probably, right? And humans invading humans in the service of Sauron invading the Shire and looking for Frodo—that's pretty alarming, right? But it's much worse than that, right? They don't seem to be even human. Human would be alarming enough, and they don't seem to be even human. Um, so. Uh, yeah, just this this sort of final piece of evidence as they oversee it from from a distance. We don't have any idea what this thing is, um, and they don't have any idea what this thing is. Only just that it is more alarming and more unnatural every single time they see it. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of strange. Um, Crystal asks, in the book, did the Black Rider see them board the ferry? Um, well, yeah, I mean, he does seem to be searching for a trail. That is, when he's sort of swaying back and forth. Um, but he seems to be following their trail, right? I mean, that like, presumably he's there because he has followed their trail there. Um, and he can tell, he has confirmed. So I, I take it that when they see him... Um, under the dist- he's on the far stage under the distant lamps, right? So he's there like at the pier. In other words, he has come to the end of their trail. He's been following their trail. He's come to the end of their trail. Um, and he's confirmed that they've crossed the river. So when he crawls or crouches back into the gloom, he's going back to his horse. He's not following their trail anymore. He's already, he's, he's found the end of their trail uh, and knows that they've crossed the river. Um, so, um, I don't think that there's any reason to think that they've seen them board the ferry, um, but they know that they crossed it, right? Can they see that far? Can they, they, that, I don't think necessarily that, um, the Black Rider can see the hobbits because they're still in the middle of the stream, right? Um, are there lamps on the ferry? Possibly there are, but we know again they, they don't see the same way that other that normal people see, right? Um, uh, and yeah, Crystal, you're right. I I get what they were doing in the movies by making it like the big chase scene, and you know Frodo barely making it there before the Black Riders caught up with them, um, 
and that worked pretty well um, in the movie. Just, you know, to convey like how close a shave it was, right? This was a very close shave. Um, them escaping. I mean, the fact that they're because I mean, you think about it. This means they were just minutes behind them, right? Um, I mean, it even kind of makes you wonder. There's there's still kind of an open question, like, did Farmer Maggot make it? Right? Did they catch up with Farmer? What direction did that Black Rider come from? Right? Did he pass Farmer Maggot on the road? I don't think so. Right? And we hope he didn't. Right? But um, but again, there's it's it's a very near thing. Right? It's a very close thing. Um, yeah. So okay. But one last thing I'd emphasize. Dark Black Bundle. Dark Black Bundle um, is weird and creepy because it's not human, right? It doesn't look human. But it's not exactly intimidating, right? A Dark Black Bundle left behind is not scary until it starts to move and sway. Right? And then we are like, oh, it's alive! Right? It's like, what's that? What's that? Did somebody leave a suitcase over there? Like, oh, no, it's a living thing. It's crawling around. Oh, it's probably one of those rider things, whatever they are. Right? Is kind of the way that this unfolds. Um, and in this way, Crystal, the way that this happens in the book is very different. The way that the black riders are being depicted so far in the book is very different. Um, they are not huge, tall, imposing figures. Um in as much as they are different from human stature, they seem to be less than human stature. Uh, again, they're described as small, little bundles, right? Like a little man. Um, they are not made huge and intimidating, right? Um, they don't have that kind of gravitas. They're frightening. They're terrifying, but they're not... Um, they're not imposing in that way, if you see what I mean exactly by that. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Karita says, it sounds like a pile of dirty laundry, then it starts moving about. That is creepy, right? It is. Um, but not, you know, the pile of dirty laundry is not itself terrifying. Mean, okay, it may be terrifying under certain circumstances, but again, it's not imposing, right? It's not intimidating, exactly. Um um, so, Crystal, yeah, it's scary in a different way. They're eerie, right? They're eerie. That's the word I would use, right? Um, they're terrifying in an eerie way, not in a I'm going to draw my sword and strike you down kind of way like they do in the films, right? Um, so, yeah, Veronica asks, were the kings uh, made ringwraiths as old men? Well, yeah. I mean, their lives were stretched out and stretched out until... Um, they became wraiths, right? So they are the shriveled remnants of humans, right? Um, and uh, you know, and that's that's what that's what ring wraiths are. Um, <laughs> Carinus says. Also, I've suddenly realized I need to pick up the floor of my bedroom before attempting to sleep tonight. <laughs> Carinus, so that. That image of the pile of laundry suddenly moving and swaying and creeping and crawling about uh, uh, too much, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now, Veronica, I, I mean, I wouldn't. 
Let's keep looking at the descriptions of the Nazgul, right? Because they're not always going to be described like this, right? When we see the Witch King at the Battle of Pelennor Field, he's not going to look like uh, a dark bundle, a dark black bundle left behind, right? He's not going to look like a pile of laundry anymore at the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, so I don't know that we can say, like, we can draw conclusions from this that, like, the average height of a ring wraith is, you know, um, but I definitely. Uh, I definitely think that we can see this this tendency towards describing them not as superhuman figures, but as subhuman figures, um, both in their natures, right? And they act like animals with the swaying and the sniffing and the crawling. Um, and they're smaller. They, they look like little bundles. If, if anything, they look too small to be human, but too big. But, you know, they're not mistaken for hobbits either. Um, yeah, so uh, so we'll... We'll have to continue to see what uh, um, what they look like and how they're described uh, as we meet them again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Hmm. All right, let's stop there. Let's stop there and let's do our field trip. Uh, so I didn't even get to Crick Hollow. I wanted to get to the bath song. Not only did I not get to the bath song, I didn't even get to Crick Hollow. Oh, well, that's all right. Uh, chapter 5 is actually a fairly short chapter, too. So uh, uh, so that'll be fine. So we'll come back. Um, we'll come back to Crick Hollow and the bath song next time and hopefully begin to look at the, begin to look at the conspiracy. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Lincoln says, I knew this chapter was going to be a long one for the class when I saw it had two songs in it. Yeah, true. I have no aspirations, Lincoln, of getting to the second song in the next class. So obviously, we're going to need at least three classes on chapter five. Uh, we'll see if we make it to uh, through chapter five in three or four classes, one of the two. Uh, but it's field trip time. Uh, let's, do our, uh, let's do our field trip. So tonight, of course, we're going to go to Buckland is where we're going to go. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, I actually just want to ride there. So let's just go outside and we'll mount up and we'll, uh, we'll head to, we'll head to Buckland straight here from Bree. All right. Okay, so here's what I want to do. Now let's mount up. We'll just head out the west gate. So we're not going to be taking a horse from west gate and going to Mickle Delving and riding across the Shire again. We are now on the other side of the river, right? So we're going to approach it from the other end. Um, we're going to ride out the west gate of Bree. It's going to be funny when we get to Bree... Right, and uh, we're going to tour around Bree and see the part of town that we've been starting in uh, uh, every class so far. Here's, of course, the Greenway Crossing, uh, which is an important spot, which, again, we'll get to that later on. Um, but um, uh, we'll, keep, uh, we'll keep going out to the west here towards the Shire. Um, yeah, JJ, I I was just lamenting this uh, the other the other day uh, that I I do lament the fact that we can't travel down the Greenway. Um, I wish we could. I wish you could travel all the way down from Bree 
uh, you know, to the, um, you know, through, th through Dunland and all the way down. But all right. So here's the road. This is, of course, in traveling down this way, we're traveling down the road that Frodo and his friends did not travel down, right? Um, this is the part of the road that they entirely skipped uh, by going through the Old Forest and the Barrow Downs. As you can see on the map, right? So here's the Bree map. Brandywine River over here. Buckland, this thin strip between the, uh, the forest and the river. The Old Forest, <clears throat> the Barrow Downs, and then Bree, and there's the intersection of the roads. Yeah. Yeah, it would be nice if they put those areas in one day, Amethorn, I agree. Though, I'm not quite sure what they would do there. That is, like, what kind of story excuse they could have for adding that area. You know, the area to the to the to the northwest of Enidwife, but um, you know, south of Bree. All right, we're getting close now. Huh. Is that where they met Saruman? I assume you, uh, JJ, you mean um, where the, the party met Saruman in, in many partings, right? When they're on the road back from Minas Tirith up to Rivendell and they meet Wormtongue and Saruman in the road as they're heading back north. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, I thought that was in Dunland. Uh Yeah, I think it's further south than that. Um, no. Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, I guess maybe the homeward journey... Um, the homeward journey could be an excuse to fill in that area. Um, and that's certainly as good an excuse as I can think. All right. So let's stop here. Um, this is the Buckland Gate, right? And of course, this, this, no, this, yes. There's Hob Hayward, right, the sheriff. You may remember Hob Hayward is, uh, uh, is the one that they recognize, that Mary knows, um, when, during Skyrim of the Shire, when they come back and they, uh, they meet, they, they, they see Hob Hayward, um, uh, you know, say he used to be uh, he, he used to be on the gate. This is what he's doing here, right? He's a sheriff. Um, you know that like Hob Hayward could stop sheriffing if it had ceased to be, uh, uh, you know, if it had ceased to be good work. Uh, as you can see, the high head. So, so this is the high hay, uh, the the very impressive hedge that you can't get over or through. Um, this is their northern gate, so it's a weekend. well, we can't see much from this, but we don't get a detailed map of Buckland, um, which I think is a shame, by the way. I wish we did get a, a detailed map of Buckland, a blow-up map of Buckland. Um, but I don't want to go in this way. I want to come at a, I want to approach it from the other way around. Let's go uh, across the bridge. This is the, uh, the Brandywine Bridge, which I've always thought was a really interesting design, 
for the bridge. You know, that they would make the bridge kind of turreted like this, you know, and arched. Um, and it seems, I mean, one reason why the bridge almost has to be like this is like it has to have a door that can be locked, right? So that they can get locked out of it at the end, you know, during the scouring. Uh, so it needed some kind of structure that you could lock. If it were just a stone bridge, they wouldn't have a door to lock. Uh, so it makes some sense that they kind of did it this way. Um, I also kind of have to wonder about the engineering of the bridge, right? Who built the bridge? Is it an Arnorian thing or is it a Hobbit thing, right? Is this Hobbit engineering and architecture or is this a remnant of the, of the older days, right? Is this a remnant of the time when, uh, 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 you know, this was a part of the kingdom of Arnor. There's no evidence, architectural evidence, that I can see that this was an Arnorian construction. Like, there's no... You'd think if this was made by the Dúnedain, there would have been the star here. Uh, normally, that's where they normally put them, right above the, you know, the, the capital to the top of arches and uh, the, the keystones in there. Normally, there would be some some kind of... Numenorean star action going on, and we don't see any star action. It's also a different color. Um, most of the Arnorian ruins are uh, ruins are a sort of a more, a more yellowish stone uh, than this. Um, and then you just get some small details that like the lamp posts, right? Uh, even these sort of metal structures. It's just a different kind of support structure than we see anywhere else. Um, I think it's Hobbit built. That's my theory. Um, it's different than any other Hobbit construction we've seen. But um, but it looks so much unlike the other Gondorian, you know, the other uh, Dunedain constructions that we see. I, I think that this is that this is Hobbit construction. Um, but I don't know. You know, it's it's the tops of these don't seem very Hobbit-like, but they don't seem very Dunedain either. Uh, so I don't know. But the bridge certainly, even if it is, whether it be Hobbit construction or human construction, um, it's weird. I mean, it looks, it really stands, there's nothing else like it around, right? So, I mean, when you kind of see it in context from the side, we see there's Brandy... There's you know the uh, 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 the there's Brandy Hall right there's there's the hill coming up from the river, and we see the other you know the had the the extension of the of the buckland and there's the high hay going around right so you can see the the land encircled by the hay with the dark forest behind it, um, and over here right the Hobbit holes and and they're up uh, you know all, all these other you know these farms and. Uh, and then there's the bridge, right? And it's just weird. It looks, it's, it's, it really stands out. Also, by the way, if you look at the bridge from the side, these like arches, these weird kind of wiggles that it gets here. I mean, that's, it's just odd construction. I think it's the, all the curves in the bridge that make me think it looks hobbitish as well instead of Numenorean. I mean, look at that. Like right in the background there, that's a Numenorian tower, right? Um, that's clearly one of the one of the, that's the Arnorian watchtower that we were looking at from the stock tower 
down here, right? Um, that clearly the Arnorians had these these towers, which were presumably watchtowers on either side of the river, right? Because the Brandywine River was such an important um, thing. Again, I mean, again, the Brandywine River is a big deal. It's not just a small stream, as you can see in the whole area door map. Um, from Lake Evendim, where Anuminus, the city of the king, was, um, all the way, you know, down to the river, it's one of, or all the way down to the sea, it's one of the major rivers of this whole, uh, of this whole region, of this whole part of the continent. Um, so the Brandywine River was a big deal, and since it led up to Anuminus, you know, to Lake Evendim and Anuminus, um, out to the sea, this was obviously a major, um, you know, sort of shipping uh, and travel um, avenue uh, in the kingdom of Arnor. Um, so again, it makes sense that you have these towers. That also doesn't make sense that you would build this bridge, right? I have to think if the Arnorians built this, it, it would have been a drawbridge. They wouldn't be able to sail ships up this river. This, 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 uh, this is a, a bridge that was built by somebody who never once thought of a, of a, of a decently sized ship sailing up this river. Right, that's clearly a non-issue for whoever built that bridge. Um, so I'm 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 pretty pretty confident that uh, this has to have been designed by hobbits uh, rather than being designed by uh, uh, by the Arnorians. Anyway, okay. So having looked at the bridge, and uh, we're now going to. Uh, um, get another lesson in the uh, small scale of the game world, right? Uh, just, you know, again, another issue. Um, and something that we'll see in a number of times here, looking at stuff here tonight. Uh, just that, you know, when you, when, you, when you have done things to the scale that they have in the game in order to make it feasible and doable and not just spending infinite time traveling distances. You know, in the time that it's taken me to utter these few sentences, I've just done the ride that they said was going to give them enough time to get back to Crick Hollow and be comfortable, right? I just, you know, we just rode from the Brandywine Bridge to Buckleberry Ferry in about a minute. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, you can see, there it is, there's a bridge from here, right? Um, you can tell it's not going to take that long. Um, Notice how carefully they've done this. You see, it's uh, so it's it's nighttime here. Look at the rocks, right? The whitewashed stones. There's one there, right? There's one there. There's one there. Um, and you've got these little pillars, like these whitewashed pillars there. And there's the white bollards at the end, right? So they've they've very carefully rendered those details that are given to us uh, in the in the description of the ferry here. Um, I want to go across. Let's see if we can take our horses across. If we can, no, no, the horses just can't cross the Brandywine. So I'm going to swim since the ferry's out of business, right? So we're gonna we're gonna we're, we're gonna we're gonna swim across the Brandywine. Horses can't do it, but by golly, we can. Um, uh, now, whose house is that over there? I'm not really. We don't really know. It's the. Uh, uh, I, I guess maybe there's somebody who watches the ferry. Now, could somebody explain this? I don't get... Is is this the ferry? Am I standing on the ferry right now? Is this the boat? Or what? It is, I think. Is this the ferry that gets towed back and forth? 
Because, I mean, this looks like a landing, right? Look at the white bollards there, right? You know, this looks like a like a landing that matches the other one. So this isn't part of the landing. So I think that this must be the ferry boat. Um which is not like the ferry boat that's described. That's described. Uh, it's not described in much detail. It's just called a a, 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 a flat boat. Um, I guess this is a could it be a kind of a raft thing. It's unclear how it was propelled across the river either. In the book, I mean, um, we're told that Mary pushed off with a long pole, but that doesn't necessarily prove that he's uh, um, that he's poling it across the river. I don't think he's pulling it. Uh, maybe he's pulling it across, but I don't really know. Um, is it drawn by ropes? That I mean, ferries often are drawn by ropes across a river. Um, uh, that's a pretty good method, right, to make sure that you're ferried, like if the river happens to be running high and, and swifter, that you don't, your ferry doesn't get washed downstream, right? Um, but again, in the, in the book, we're not told the mechanism for... Um, uh, for the ferry crossing the river. Um, this, of course, is, if you look at this from this perspective, right, we know that you can have horses on here, right? Mary had his horse, his pony, uh, on the ferry. Um, you know, uh, horses are traditionally transported across on the ferry, and you can see how, you know, horses, it would, this would work for horses. That's why we get these little... Uh, these little barriers here. Notice how there are there are um, rings, right? Like for tying your 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 horses up here, um, so that you can see. We fit lots of horses on the ferry. Look at that. Um, so you you go across and you 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 tie your horse up there to that ring to keep him on the ferry and keep from jumping off. Um, is there an oar on the platform? Gravity. I didn't see the oar. On this platform that we're standing on, I didn't see an oar around here. Or is there an oar over there? Now, the guard has a staff here, but I think that's just to beat people off with. You know, since they're on high alert, I'm not really sure. Um, close to the ground? Let's see. Where is it? Over there? Aha! I see. Well, yeah, that's a paddle. That's not even an oar. That's a little odd, right? Nobody could paddle that ferry with that little... It's like a canoe paddle. Weird. You imagine trying to paddle this big old clunky thing with a, with a canoe paddle like that? I don't know. That's weird. But anyway, okay. So we come across, and what do we have? We have a, a steep bank up, and 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 it's all it's all set up properly, right? I like the little arch in the in the in the hedge. Notice this is just a small hedge. This is, this is a minor hedge. Um, JJ is wondering if it could be an emergency paddle to try to redirect it if the rope snaps or something. Possibly, possibly. Uh, Amethorn is thinking that the rings are for accommodating the rope drawing the ferry across the river. Quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, I'm thinking about uh, I'm thinking about horses, of course, and tying up horses. But it could well have been for the ropes. We don't see any evidence of the ropes, but um, but then again, we might not, since the ferry's out of commission. We're told. All right, so let's go into Buckland. Um, now, 
this is another place. If you go to the to the part of the chapter where it describes how they come in, it says that they now if you were if you're in game here, if you're wanting to go to Crick Hollow, um, you go this way, right? You turn this way and you go, and it's it's right down over there to the right. Um, but that's not how it's described in the book. In the book, it says when they come up from the ferry, they pass um, they pass Brandy Hall and Buck Hill on their left. Uh, you know, so so they there's they pass the hill on their left, and then they turn up uh, to go. So they're going around the hill the other way around. But the problem again is scale. Um, Buckland in the game world is so small that Brandy Hill, you know, it's I mean Buck Hill is like the entire like two thirds of the entire region, right? So to go around Buck Hill, um, you're going through almost the entire inner circumference of the whole southern part of Buckland. Again, because of the scale thing, so it doesn't really work. Um, we'll go that way, but let's uh, let's go up first since we're since we're right here. Here is Brandy Hall, and there's the master of the hall, Saradoc Brandy Buck. Mary's dad. Um, uh, he will be called Mariadoc, son of Saradoc. Uh, like once in the book, we very rarely hear uh, uh, Saradoc's name, Mary's father's name. But um, it's uh, we. If you look in the genealogy, the family trees in the back, you find Saradoc's nickname. Right, Brandy Bucks uh, are often given nicknames, and their nicknames are really fun. And Saradoc's nickname in particular, um, his nickname is Scattergold. Saradoc Scattergold, he is called, <coughs> which is fun, right? Uh, and it shows you, it suggests how generous he is, or at least how much money he spends, right? Um, and uh, Emma Thorne, I've never counted to make sure there are 100 windows in Brandy Hall. It looks like there are probably fewer than 100, all told, uh, even if we go around. Um, but um, uh, nor have I counted the the number the number of side doors. Uh, there are there are three doors here, right, as are described. Um, but yeah, this is really impressive. Remember Bag End, right? Bag End, and the, you know which was this this deluxe hobbit hole on top of the hill. Um, remember the reference to Gorondad Old Buck excavating. The hill, right? This entire hill has been transformed into this one big complex mansion. The mansion which uh, uh, which um, Gaffer Gamgee uh, has called uh, like a regular warren by all accounts, right? It's like a rabbit warren, this place. Uh, and you can see how that is kind of borne out here. Let's, uh, um, let's keep going. Let's notice how the gardener was... Uh, Marveling at how anyone would, why anyone would venture. Oh, it's a side door. Look at that. Um, why any, or this, these are probably separate holes from, for uh, other, like, are they connected to the Brandy Hall? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not really sure. Um, these might be just like, maybe these are to Brandy Hall what Bagshot Row is to Bag End, I'm thinking quite likely. Because um, these look like totally separate apartments there, totally separate houses. Uh, and as we go along the bottom, we find um, seeming to bear out the idea of, uh, you know, sort of the sort of servants' quarters area, right? The, the, we have this uh, crafting area where we have um, 
you know, workbenches and forges here. Uh, this is interesting. This is Hayes End, sort of. Uh, again, if we look at the map, we see that the 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 so we're right here. The red arrow is where we are. Um, it doesn't extend quite as far south as it does in the book. Right, the, uh, Hayes End um, is way down to where the Withywindle. Uh, empties into the Brandywine uh, so it would be down here so we're not quite, it doesn't go quite as far south as is described um, in uh, in the book, but but anyway this is, this is the southern reach of it and when we follow this around this way we can see uh, remember that description how, you know, in places you can the old forest, you can, you're kind of aware of the old forest and you can see even though the high hay is there. Notice these trees even on the near side of it look a little bit unfriendly. We've got willow trees here, right, and lowlands down here. Um, yeah, it looks like there are places where the old, like the influence of the old forest is kind of... Uh, um, and notice these trees over here are perfectly still. Those trees over there are moving, Right? Kind of like, I don't know what's going on. This tree isn't moving. Those trees are moving. Right? The trees over there. You get the sense that the trees are very much more alive, right, than the other trees. Um, uh, and yes, JJ, I would address these trees down here as young master willow. Yes, exactly. They're not old man willow. Uh, uh, that's 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 precisely it. Um, but yeah, so like these trees, like the twisting of their boughs, of their trunks, or of their boles, I mean to say, and their uh, uh, the the sort of writhing of their branches, which is probably the wind, but maybe not. Yes, we can see that the old forest seems to have some influence even inside the hedge here, which is a little bit uh, which is a little bit disturbing. Um, they can fence themselves in, but they can't forever fence it out. Um, these two seem to be based on like the little driveways that we get here, little paths up to the door. Um, uh, again, more uh, more Brandybuck relations, right? And uh, dependents, their dependents. Remember, um, again, that's who I'm thinking lives on the ground floor here, next to say the cows, right? And um, you know the sheep. We passed some sheep before as well. Um, Again, that's why I'm thinking all of these things are kind of like the bagshot row of uh, um, of Brandy Hall. Um, but okay, so oh, hang on. There's a stable master over here I really should say hi to. Hi, Mr. Stable Master. Good day. Yeah, good day to you too. Um, now this over here is the is the the back door, the the entrance. Uh, into the old forest, but we'll get there. It's not time for that yet. Um, so the way that we just came all the way around the back of the hill and then up and down this way, this is again the sort of in-game equivalent of how they describe their path, um, like taking the hill on their left and then turning to the north. Um, and now we get in towards uh, Crick Hollow. We got some some stuff going on here, but hang on, wait. There's a, there's a, yeah, here it is. There's a lane. Look at this lane, right? There's a lane that heads up this way, and it goes past the fields, right? Past the, the, this, this, this pasture land over here, and uh, 
in the book it's described as going on for a couple miles, right? But it's uh, it's it's a, good, it's a good deal quicker than that. Um, and we come around to this sheltered and in fact hedged little hollow with the house hidden inside it. And this is, of course, the house at Crick Hollow. There's Fatty Bulger. Now, here we're jumping forward in time because, of course, in the game world, you don't get to, in the game story, you don't get to Crick Hollow until after Frodo uh, has left. So this is post, uh, we're, we're, we're way ahead in time here. This is post, let's see, the Black, the black Riders have already broken down the door uh, and uh, and kicked stuff apart here. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come back and, and uh, look at this a little bit more later on. But this is the house at Crick Hollow. Notice how, although the door is off here to the side, the overall layout of this is is one directional, right? Once you get in and you turn this way, um, because again, it's it's like a hole. It's described like Bag End with a single hallway with uh, branching, uh, you know, with rooms on either side. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, okay. So this is the house at Crick Hollow. Notice how it's sheltered in behind its own little hedge. Again, see the hedges are for shutting in, right? Not for uh, uh, not for 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 keeping other things. You, know, you can't keep everything else out with it. Um, but yeah, so this is the dark and secluded little house, uh, not real close to Brandy Hall, not far from it. Right, uh, it's right over there. Um, but uh, but this is the quiet little retreat spot, right for uh, uh, for for the for the for the people in the hall. Um, Okay, and uh, <laughs> yes, Thorns, that that was the red circle that Frodo and company would go to if they were defeated. Right, exactly. Uh, and then we're coming back up to the gate again. So again, again, we have this is Newbury. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> these are the hobbits that are having this problem with the cow on the roof. Right, trying to figure out how to get the cow off the roof. Uh, this is the, the Boffin family over here. Um, and you can see we're back up to the bridge there. And here is the inside of the gate that we started from at the beginning. Wagons having come in, bringing stuff. And there's Hob Hayward again. All right. So that is our little tour of Buckland. Um, so as I say, next time um, we will... Uh, we will get to Crick Hollow, uh, which we've seen a little little preview of here in the game tonight. We'll get to Crick Hollow. We'll do the bath song. This will definitely occur next time. And we'll begin looking at, at the conspiracy. Um, don't forget to sort of look back and remember the hints of the conspiracy that we got in Chapter 2, in particular with Sam, um, before, we, uh, before we look at how that works out uh, in Chapter 5. Um, don't forget, it's going to be a little while, I'm afraid, because I'm traveling. I'm actually only traveling next week. The week after that, I'm going to be home. Um, but I'm, I, I'm uh, uh, locked into a family thing all day and all evening. It's going to be a very, very long day on Tuesday, April 6th. So I'm not going to be available on that day. Um, but we will resume again on June 13th. Uh, and uh, one last thing I wanted to sort of announce or remind you of... Um, uh, don't forget, we're still taking uh, sign-ups for our Hobbit Immersion Camp, our summer camp for middle schoolers this term, this uh, this year. Um, we've uh, we've had a really exciting response to the Hobbit Camp so far. We have forty chapters already. Um, 
all over, uh, mostly in America. We, we do have a, a Canadian library which signed up today, which is great, um, but they're all over America. Um, we're going to have, we're looking uh, right now at about, you know, having uh, uh, some, somewhere between three and 500 families uh, uh, involved in the, uh, in the Hobbit camp this summer. So we're really excited about that. Um, there's still, there's still room for more. Um, so don't forget to check that out on signumuniversity.org. Uh, scroll down a little bit to the events uh, uh, pages and you can see the, the yellow uh, uh, tile for the uh, for the Hobbit Immersion Camp that'll give you all the information you need, uh, things to hand to your library to give them more information, the library sign-up sheet. Um, there's, uh, uh, I, I hope that uh, you, know, you can see if you can get your local library involved, if you're involved in another kind of group, uh, if there's just a, you know, a, a group of families uh, you know, that you know that you think might like to do it, if your family would like to do it on their own, they'd be totally welcome as well. So, um, uh, send people along. We're, we're we're looking forward to talking about the Hobbit <clears throat> together uh, with uh, with uh, a few hundred kids this summer. So that's going to be great fun. So uh, so check that out. And uh, I will. And in the meantime, I will see you guys in three weeks from tonight on June thirteenth, as we will resume chapter five. So thanks a lot, everybody, and I will see you guys. Uh, not quite soon enough, but I'll see you guys soon. Uh, bye now. Good night.